Welcome to the Jewish Education Experience Podcast with your hosts, Yasmina and Ari, who will be uncovering gems of wisdom with Jewish educators from around the world. If you like our episodes and you want to become a patron, you can help support more episodes just like this by going to www.patreon.com forward slash Jewish Education Experience Podcast. Our guest today is Rabbi Chaim Galfand. Hello, Rabbi Galfand. Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for being here with us today. Thank you very much, Yasmina and Ari. It's great to be with you. All right, let's get right into it. Will you please tell us a bit more about yourself and how you began your journey in education? Certainly. So uh, maybe I'll start with the second half of that, which is how this all began and I didn't really realize it at the time, I suppose, but the seeds got planted when I was in elementary school. And I'm not being silly or or sarcastic when I say that, but it began by my going to a Jewish day school as a child. And I, in a minute, I'll get to where that piece of the puzzle fits in. But it took a long time for those planted seeds to germinate, I guess. So after elementary school at a conservative Jewish day school, a Schechter school. I went on to a middle school and high school in Philadelphia that was a community day school. And um, following that time, I went off to college and went to law school and I became a uh, a lawyer. And as far as I knew, that was going to be my, uh, my path through life. But uh, it was really because I ended up in a Philadelphia law firm in a particular situation that everything started turning full circle. Um, so the path of Jewish education began when my second part of the day as a lawyer began. It was around six o'clock and I was going to be putting in more hours. And I was heading to the law firm's library and the chairman of the firm literally grabbed me by the sleeve. And he said, uh, look, I'm hosting a reception for the American Jewish Committee. He said, you're Jewish and I need more warm bodies in there. <laughs> and so... I walked in and, you know, the chairman of the firm says, I need you and you're a first year lawyer, you go. And I went and I smiled and I ended up joining the American Jewish Committee that evening. And I ended up on a steering committee to form a young adult division. Um, and I suppose at the time I was looking to say, all right, maybe I can develop some business in all of this. And we came up with a name for the group called Bridges. And we then quickly came up with, well, what would the bridges potentially be? And we talked about bridges between Philadelphia Jews and Jews in other countries, between Jewish communities within Philadelphia, between Jews and other religious and ethnic groups in Philadelphia. And then just because I wanted sort of the balance of four, I added in the bridges between an individual Jew and their own heritage, culture, or tradition. And I didn't realize that that was going to end up being what grabbed people. And over the next couple of years as a lawyer, I began finding that I was giving more and more of my time on the volunteer basis towards this young adult division of an organization that was ostensibly about civil rights uh, and human rights, but where we had all of these young Jewish professionals who were sort of hungering for something. They wanted us to focus on that fourth bridge, the link between an individual Jew in their own tradition. Mm -hmm. And it was in hearing those rumblings of a hunger to learn that it was starting to stir something within me. And so this goes back to those seeds because I started thinking I've been in Jewish day school my whole life. But when I think of something that kind of resonates on this most natural, warm level, it was the elementary years. So it's kind of like that old adage of, you know, Give me a, a, you know, a child for the first, you know, eight years of their life and I'll give you a Catholic for life. Well, that works pretty much for every tra tradition when you kind of focus at those ages. Um, so we began to do some learning and I found that I had maybe a little bit more to give than some other people because I had had this rich jewel of education and hearing myself kind of talk more with the group and share more. I started realizing maybe this is something that I want to do with my life. And I started exploring it. And at first I was thinking maybe a master's in Jewish education. I really wasn't quite sure. Um, and then um, two years after that, my father passed. And uh, in sitting Shiva and in the conversations with 
the rabbi who helped us through that, I decided that I would approach my future maybe with rabbinical school. And, you know, it was in rabbinical school that I discovered Camp Ramah. Now, I had gone for two years when I was very young, when I was 11 and 12, um, but I hadn't been one of those camp kids that go all the way through and is on staff. You weren't a Romanic? <laughs> I was a Romanic for those two years, but then I went back as a grown up to teach. And it was my first experience, really, with any sort of teaching. And what was extraordinary about it was it was that combination of, uh, you know, informal and formal, because uh, it was a blend of kids during the summertime where they just want to have fun and they're expecting to spend their glorious summer at camp. But then they're told, well, you got to be in class for a period every day. Uh, right. So I was handed this binder of lesson plans or maybe lesson outlines is a better way to put it and said, go teach. And it was my first time starting to realize this relationship. And I think I thought of it as a dance at the time between the information that you're trying to transmit and the person doing the transmitting. And I'm absorbing this material and I'm passing it along. And that was kind of how I saw it at the time. So that was my entree sort of into education. And then as I went through rabbinical school, um, I spent two more summers after that at Camp Ramah, but it was in my um, the start of my fifth and final year at the Jewish Theological Seminary that I got a phone call out of the blue. And it was in October. So it was four months before the usual interviewing season. And it was from a head of school of a Jewish day school in Philadelphia. Coincidentally, the day school that I went to. Wow. And he said, I, I don't know you, but I was talking with somebody on one of our parent focus groups because we're thinking of starting a middle school. And I think we should have a rabbi at that school. And they said that I should talk to you. That's so, so interesting. We met for coffee and I was offered the job, even though I had never worked in a school. So what I do now started with no education courses, except for one, a class on how to teach theology with, uh, with Professor Neil Gilman and uh, Dr. now Rabbi Steve Brown. And I've been with Perlman Jewish Day School ever since, the school that I went to as a child and where now my own children have gone and where um, I have the delight of working day in, day out. Wow, it really came full circle there. Yeah, yeah. I find it really interesting. You mentioned the, uh, you know, that the the formative years in elementary school, um, but then you ended up in middle school. So do you find that there's, um, the, the kids are kind of, uh, what do you say, baked by the time they get to middle school? Well, they're, they're capable of, a more abstract level of thinking. So there is a lot of fun with being at that middle school uh, segment, but I do believe you have to, you have to really want to be a middle school teacher. And I'm not sure everybody's cut out for it. Mm -hmm. Admittedly, I was there for two years and it was then that I went back to the head of school and I said, look, you know, we've got this incredible 145 student middle school and it's terrific. But I said, we've got hundreds of kids in our two elementary schools and I said, we need to build from the bottom up. So we brought in a wonderful educator to take that spot in the middle school. And then I transitioned to our two elementary level schools. And I began working with students in all grades. Um, then it was kindergarten through and including fifth. And we now have a four-year-old class. So we have a pre-K. And um, it's, it's different every year because it really depends on who's there in front of you in the classroom. Okay, so you're saying by the time you get to middle school, it's not too late. You haven't missed the boat. I don't think it is, but you're right in the sense that there is a foundation that gets laid and opportunities are still there if, if a window hasn't been closed shut. And I don't want to say that a window closes on its own just developmentally or as kids go through that transescence time and they approach adolescence. Uh, I think the greater risk comes from the window being slammed shut by others, by their peers, by what they read and see in the world around them, sadly by teachers, by parents. And there are so many factors that some sometimes rise up against children that 
when they arrive at that moment and their own their own sense of adolescence is taking hold where they want to individuate and they're more likely to sort of push against. Um, I think all of those sort of come to create that perfect storm where for some kids, they it is too late, but mm-hmm. not for all. And I think that's where patient, kind educators really excel. Nice. Do you think even for those kids, maybe you think that, okay, maybe it's too late, maybe they missed the boat or maybe something turned them off. Do you think down the line, there's potentially something that can re-inspire them to come back? Oh, absolutely. Meaning when we think of the, the, the college outreach work that's being done by Hillel's all across North America, when we think about the institutions such as Pardes in Israel that are able to take kids that are post-college, I think that as, as long as there's a little bit of that spark somewhere in there, I think that it can be fanned into something larger. Okay. Um, a lot of what I do at the school, I, I love telling stories, right? And this is that story of the apprentice to the blacksmith, and he's taught how to do everything with all of the tools and how to shape all of the metals. And he sort of, uh, you know, comes back after his first day on, on the job on his own. And he, he says, oh, I failed miserably. You know, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get the, the fire to, to, to go. And the guy said, did you use the bellows? And he said, I, I did. He said, well, was there a spark already going? And he said, well, no. And he said, ah, remember the bellows. And it's only going to help you if you can fan something that is already there. Right. I'm trying to decide at this point in my life, is it really true, right? Can we only fan something that's a spark that's existing? Or do we have to be in a position where somehow sometimes we ignite something and then fan it? Um, I don't know. That's a little bit of that chicken and egg kind of discussion. But no, to answer the question very clearly, it's never too late, but a lot of opportunity can get lost. Right. Meaning if you can take all of those years when kids are really trying to step back from the adults in their lives, especially their, their family and become their own person. What if they could really be attached to their educators as inspiring models and say, as I'm developing myself, that Jewish piece is going to be a part of my core. And it's because it's not coming from my family. It's not being imposed. Um, You know, when you're dealing with that age range, if you lose them, then you could potentially lose them all through high school. You could lose them until maybe ninth or 10th grade when sometimes they can engage again, but it's a shame if you can't do it before they head off to, uh, to college. You know, this is, this is not necessarily a podcast on Israel education, right? But that's one of the discussions of, do we do our children a disservice by not focusing in on the complexities of the Israel question? Um, and then they head off to college and they feel, wait a minute, I'm finding out more facts. And was I lied to? Um, maybe all of the positive or only positive images that I got, the, the hugging of, of Israel, um, maybe I need to be skeptical of all that. You know, what if the same sort of a model holds with you know, the Jewish piece? Because you know, I'm thinking very much about kids that go to a Jewish day school. And I, I'm, in a way, an example of that. When I got to college, I... I was not necessarily looking to to continue along my Jewish journey. In some ways, I felt like I might have had enough. And it was those elementary years that I think were the roots that held me, held me still, that, that kept me fast. Um, because for me, I had to come back to it. I often think of that this is whether you're going to really be able to rope people in, like the cowboy with the lasso pulling in somebody, or whether you should have the model that is so magnetic that it just draws people in of their own accord. Right. I think yeah. with that latter image, the success rate is probably greater, though I recognize we could measure success differently. So for yeah. sure. Wow. All right. Yeah. The Israel, certainly that's a, a major topic and maybe we can come back to that um, at a certain point, but we'd like to know who are the educators that you particularly admire? Oh, Wow. Um, well, I would say I started talking about stories. So I would say Rabbi Eddie Feinstein, because anything he writes, but also any story that he tells. And 
he's an educator who's equally adept with children that might be knee high and with adults who are, uh, you know, very well educated. Um, so I admire his ability to, to handle all sorts of learners um, and to do so engagingly. Uh, I would say somebody like a Rabbi Aryeh Ben David, um, now with the organization Ayeka, and he has this emphasis really on engaging learners less in, in the region of the head and more in the region of the heart. Um, he has a wonderful book called Becoming a Soulful Educator, and uh, really a must read for, for those listeners who sort of want to think about education from the side of the soul and not just from the cognitive uh, standpoint. Um, I'd probably add uh, Dr. Ron Wolfson um, because he's he's been out there preaching how we have to really genuinely care about people, right? How, how we have to welcome them and how we have to listen to them and how ultimately that that sort of treatment can create communities of belonging and blessing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when you've got that sort of an assertion from somebody like a, a Ron Wolfson that you can connect people to Judaism by connecting them to community, I think it starts to give you a blueprint for how you want to move ahead. Um, two, two years ago, I had a wonderful experience at the Song Leader Boot Camp, which was um, really created and now uh, driven with his passion in his heart by Rick Recht uh, out of St. Louis. Um, all of the educators who use their music to open eyes and and doors, I, I so admire them, whether they are the, you know, the Rabbi Yosef Goldman's of the world or Rabbi Josh Warshawski's of the world. Um, so, so many people who, through music, have helped me discover a piece of myself that I think uh, I hadn't paid enough attention to. Mm-hmm. So and maybe I'll even throw in there just because the idea of God's love is extremely important to me. And when you have somebody who is a very powerful theologian and a serious, uh, you know, Talmud Chacham, uh, Rabbi Shai Held, when he can take some of his powerful acumen and devote it towards uh, what what God's love really can look like in this world, um, there's another educator that I would deeply admire. For sure. Well, I'm glad you mentioned God because we were also thinking you work with various age groups at Perlman. Um, how does God come up? How do you typically talk about God with your students? Hmm. So, so hopefully I'll get a, a chance to add a little bit more about this later, but um, this year I'm actually doing an initiative uh, which is called make room for God. Mm-hmm. And it's because I, in all of my teaching, I started realizing that we teach a lot of Torah and we teach a lot of, you know, dinim and minhagim, the, the laws and customs of, um, of Jewish life and especially of the holidays. And we have experiences through the year, but we're, we weren't really overt about what it means to experience God and that we weren't making room for God. And it's, it's, if I sort of say the only God we were making room for was, you know, Noah's God, you know, the one who flooded the entire world and killed everything in it but the fish. That's a mm-hmm. lovely, scary portrait to hold up to, to six-year-olds. And yet the number of teachers that do so and the number of books that exist that sort of put that out there as one of our earliest, you know, images of what God is going to be. I have to sometimes wonder if we're creating a lot of scar tissue that we're going to be unable to break up later on. And that scar tissue is going to kind of serve to be restricting the movement of our students. So I try to be really careful about talking about God. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to necessarily talk about the God that creates the world in six days, you know, from separating light to creating of human. Um, because that has also certain limitations. There are ways to frame it. And especially, and I'll be honest, I know it's not for every school, but for me in my school, to look at that as inspiration, to look at that as metaphor, to look at the question not of Torah as how was the world created, but why was the world created? 
Those are the questions which I think are as much of interest to me personally as they are to kids. And so I think we have to be very careful about how we talk with kids. And I do work with four-year-olds up to and including, um, you know, 11-year-olds. Okay. And the gap is big, but not as big as we might think. Um, I, I always recall the expression from law school from a professor who uh, he would speak of using testimony in the courtroom and the procedure by which you bring that testimony in. And he used to say, you have to be really careful because you can't unring the bell, by which he meant that once you hear something, it can be so unrealistic to say, oh, just ignore what you heard. So when we teach something about God at a young age, I think we have to be thinking about what's going to happen when they are in middle school. Right. Is that going to be the sole picture that they have of God? And knowing that for so many of our adults in the Jewish community, the last time that they were really involved with their own Jewish lives in any serious way might have been their time when they were bat or bar mitzvah. It's true. And if that's where they were still with the image of God, then it shouldn't surprise us that God's not really on the radar for so many of our grownups. Mm. You know, I, I, I can say to, like, I, I actually teach what I would call theology to our second graders. Um, I don't call it theology, of course, right? But, um, you know, we take the 18, uh, the Shemona Esprit, which is really the, called the 18, but it's these 19 blessings which make up the Amidah or our, our central devotional prayer. And I say these 19 ideas are the big ideas of being Jewish. And nearly all of them connect in some way to aspects of what we would call God. And I start to bring children along to the point where they imagine the name tag, you know, the kind where you go when you go to a convention or something and it says, my name is. And I say, imagine that you've got a name tag that says, my name is God. What would you put that on? And if you were to ask older kids, if they haven't had opportunities to showcase what they feel and what they think, and, and this is the thing, I believe kids are so powerfully connected to a sense of what is godly in this world. It's true. We, we often close the door on that, often unintentionally, because we're a little bit scared to talk about it, because we as parents, we're not really sure ourselves. We haven't done our own um, due diligence for ourselves. And so we say, yeah, I don't really know anything about that. Instead of saying, you're asking great questions and we should start to look at them together and keeping an open-ended approach to our kids. But I say to kids, when have you felt, you know, that you were in a moment where you were connected to something much greater than yourself? Well, that's different than saying, tell me about the God you believe in, little second grader. That doesn't work so well. But you have to start coming up with different ways to look at that topic and then say, so that feeling that you expressed, maybe we can put the God name tag, you know, my name is God on that. Because God is simply a label for that which might link all of us. God is simply that name tag by which we call something which existed before there was anything. All of the different ways that we might start to conceive of God, they all get that name tag. And it, it's not a stretch for kids to say, but wait, God can be all of those things. Some, some of those things are opposite, that God is, is who you turn to in your closest moment, but yet God is also that which is more powerful than anything. These are opposites, right? It's, it's the, the near and far. It's the, the imminence and transcendence. But we know that God can be both of those. And to try to draw that out from children at the earliest of ages, is super important because they already know. They know about God. They may never have known what to call it, that sense of wonder when they're sitting there looking at a leaf or watching a caterpillar, and they feel in awe of something. We have more to learn from them than they have to learn from us. And we as grownups are often more at fault for the shutdown of that innate sense of curiosity and feeling of connection. So, you know, when you ask, what do I do with different ages? I think, I guess in order to 
initiate a meaningful exchange about God, I think adults need to demonstrate a respect for young children that really acknowledges and affirms their ability to make meaning of the world around them. We have to give them credit. And I think this kind of a worldview is going to be the one that doesn't underestimate them. It doesn't belittle their ability to to express wonder about existential issues, not that they would be able to call it that. And their ability to sort of pose pretty darn sophisticated questions. And I think you then have to appreciate the fact that kids possess different modes of expression, um, certainly amongst themselves, and oftentimes different than adults. And so sometimes it means stepping back and simply giving them the room. And if you're if you're willing to accept that premise, then I think adults should consider ways to explain concepts using analogies, using art, using stories, using dramatic play. And in that way, we start to get into a deliberation with young children about theological questions in ways that are going to allow them to express themselves a little more coherently. But if we're talking about Jewish education, this needs to start then with our educators starting to think about where they are, because we've got some incredibly well-educated, gifted Jewish educators who haven't really themselves thought about the God piece. So when I think about this idea of make room for God, you know, it's it was just a catchy title, but I wanted people to think about what does it mean to, to make you know, how do I make room for God? Or what, what, what about the word room? Is that room that is in my heart only? Is it room that's in my, in my mind? And what do we mean by God? And so all of those elements, I'm sort of asking people to, to play with and to see what it feels like for them. And with educators, we need to provide professional development programs that are going to start to give them the knowledge, resources, the confidence to start to really address their own theological positions. So I, I, I've heard I've heard there's uh, this Jewish educational uh, tradition to begin teaching the youngest children. I'm assuming maybe four or five uh, with Vayikra, with you know the Torah portions of Leviticus. How, how do you feel about that? So I will say that we are certainly teaching Torah to our first graders, you know, the kids are, when they're younger will get Parashat Shavua, the weekly Torah portion. But we are going through, certainly starting from second grade onward, with the books of the Bible. And that does include Vayikra. We're not starting with it. But in many ways, what makes that so appropriate is its very sense of Kiddushah. In its literal sense, holiness, but also apartness or separateness, otherness that there are different realms and that there are sometimes moments and actions that we experience, which can give us a better sense of that apartness. But that's what kids are able to sense at those tenderest of ages, that there is something beyond us. There is something greater than us. There are moments that are qualitatively different and I, I wish that our parents, right, because we only do so much at the school level. The home is is a significant opportunity. And if I were to say to, to kids in younger grades, so what's your, you know, what do your parents like to do in terms of vacations? Kids will know. You know, what do they like to watch in terms of television? Kids will probably know. What's their favorite flavor of ice cream? They know. Do they think about God? I have no idea. Mm. And I'll say, which do you think is more important? And the kids two or one will say, well, if they think about God, right. of course, that's more important. And I'll say, how come you don't know? And it's the combination of they don't tell me or I never asked. Yeah. And I'll say, that's a pretty small hill to climb, isn't it? All you have to do is ask. Yeah. And then all the parents start emailing me saying, what did you do? <laughs> you know, that, that's Pandora's box. And it was so, looking so lovely on the shelf. But this is how you make change is you don't just work with children, but you you bring the family into it. 
but then you're also there as a support for them. You're not sort of hanging them out to dry at the end of the branch. That's um, true. And it ties into what you said before also, then, you know, you're opening that box, but then parents also have to be so careful if they're not sure about where God is in their mind and their lives and being so careful to not turn off their children when they do eventually have that discussion. So how do we help no, them, I guess? How do we arm them with that? Oh, yes, Mina, this is a, this is a <laughs> it's a secret. Don't tell anybody, but I kind of give the kids a little bit of a hint that this might be a little bit scary for some of their parents mm. because they don't, they don't go to our school and they don't have the chance to sort of be talking about this as openly as we do. So I said, you have to be patient with your parents, you know, and I, I, I lead them down that path of understanding that it's not a single conversation. It's, you know, and, and I'll be honest that sometimes with kids, I'll say, sometimes we as grownups, you know how we get so busy that we almost, we sometimes give you the message that we don't have as much time for you. And they say, yeah. Right. And I'll say, life is busy. But I said, we were all once kids. It's and true. we all looked at that leaf with the same amazement that you did, or we, you know, played with, you know, those, those things with the same sense of, I can do anything with these. We were once you, and you may have to help us discover that part of ourselves again. So we empower them to be the ones, not just sort of interviewing their parents, certainly not grilling their parents, but saying, well, maybe I can help to open the discussion with my parents. Right. Yeah, wow. this is, definitely fascinating and i know we would love to see you know when that god curriculum comes out we would love to see that <laughs> it involves everything from bibliodrama to journaling so <laughs> it's, it's a variety of things that wow we're... okay well well so education right in hebrew uh can be an amorphous term how do you define education ah okay so i, I mentioned my my summer when i first started at Ramon. i sort of said there's this what I thought of like a dance between the information being transmitted and the person doing the transmitting. But I think I see it differently now because that was very early on as I was making my turn into education. Now I see education much more as facilitating and certainly not transmitting. So I think when I think of chinuch, I think of maybe it's basic meaning, which is training. And that's not to say that there's not a place for relaying details. There certainly is, but I've come to see education as the feeding of an intrinsic curiosity that you're there facilitating someone in their in their quest quest to discover the things about which they're curious. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's funny because I, I love I love Hebrew, and I, I've often thought about that line from the the Shema from the Viahavta paragraph where it says Vishinan Tam Levanecha. You know, it, we say you will diligently teach your children. But the shinan tam is from the word shinain, from shen, from teeth, right? You're going to grind this material up so that people can properly digest it, right? So chinuch is, it's interesting because chanichaim is the Hebrew word for gums. So not to say that chinuch is gumming up the works. I would never say that about education. But uh, it's the idea that it's sort of, it has to do with what we take in, and um, the one of the, one of the questions about chinuch is maybe whether it's connected connected to the word palate um, from the word chech, which is an old Aramaic word. Um, that the idea that you kind of are going to take a child that's that's going to begin nursing, and you're going to rub like a paste of dates onto the palate of their mouth, mm. so it's going to begin the suckling process. Right? It's the idea of priming the pump of starting the process. And so maybe we can say chinuch is a little like that, that we're connected to starting something. You know, we're used to the idea of chinuch being starting if you connect it to something like Hanukkah Mishkan. Right. You know, the, the initiating of our journey with God in our midst in a more concrete way. So maybe my question would be, is it okay if I talk about education as you know, what's the journey? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not generalizing to science or to math, though I, I think holiness resides there as well. But for me now, I see chinuch as 
guiding people to the paths along which they're going to travel to discover their place and their purpose in the universe. Wow, and, I really, I really like that. Yeah, really great answer. And I like uh, how you mentioned about the Hebrew because we interviewed recently um, a colleague of of ours, Dina Eliezer, and she also mentioned about Hebrew and words, and she um, connected the same thing that you did about how important the Hebrew language is and how it all ties together. Um, so how would you... She enlightened us about the gums. About, too. Yeah. yeah. We were like, oh, good. Um, how, how do you help your students um, appreciate the Hebrew language? Because, you know, here we are, we live in America, we're speaking English, you know. Why am I learning this language that I'm only hearing in school? You know, how do you get your students to understand Hebrew, to connect with it more? How do we do a better job? And, and if I can maybe just pack onto that, just because um, I'm curious, did, did you um, develop your love for Hebrew also in elementary school or did that come later? Uh, so this is the challenge, Ari, because I, I literally was having a coffee with uh, um, my, one of my closest friends, a classmate from rabbinical school. We sat this morning and we were having coffee and he too is a Jewish educator. And I said, generation, generationally, we're in a different place. I grew up at a time where we drilled you know, on the conjugation of verbs. Mm. And we we had to, every time we were reading Hebrew, we were pulling out the shoresh, the root or the base yeah. word. And then we got into middle school and we were looking at modern and ancient poetry. And we were looking at, at Hebrew songs, classic and modern. Wow. And it was hard. And I said, we're not going back to that. Rare is going to be the level of of students that there are enough of them and You've got a teacher that appreciates that style of learning. So I think that that's gone to some extent. But what I love is we've got third graders at our school. And every year we give a book as the grade level book. And what we give to our third graders is the Jewish Publication Society Tanakh or Hebrew Bible. And we don't give it as a third grade book. I say, I think you know enough now in third grade that you can start to appreciate this book, which is the book that will accompany you through life. And we often go through the English so that they can see the word that they don't understand. And then I say, let's turn to the Hebrew. And they start to realize that there's something about knowing Hebrew that's going to unlock different doors. Nice. You know? so, so to sort of take, a, take something from, from the book of Vayikra, from Leviticus, that you're not supposed to sort of you know, profane the name of God right? We think of it as a chilul Hashem. And they don't know what profane means, just like they don't know what sanctify means. So the English is almost not helpful. But when you start to take that root word of, of chet lamed lamed, halal, and they start realizing that it means, you know, outer space, or a halalit is a spaceship. And we start to bring them to the point that, you know, a halal is, is a soldier on the battlefield who's been pierced by a spear. And it's the idea that it becomes a place that is empty. Hmm. So now they realize, oh, so a chilul Hashem is emptying out God's name. Wow. That's, that's much better than profane. And then, of course, I can say to them, and what's profanity? You know, and they say, I don't know. And I say, you know what cursing is? And they all go, yes, I do. <laughs> and you say, right. And I know all of those words and I don't use them because they're empty. That's profane language. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, Hebrew from the earliest levels can start to be valuable. Now, also, when they arrive at our school, they're hearing Hebrew music that's playing. And at lunch or recess, they're hearing Hebrew music that's playing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're always learning Hebrew songs. And, you know, they're not the classic ones that I grew up with. You know, the classic, often kind of old school Zionist songs. Um, They're learning some of those, but they're learning more modern stuff. Okay. And that helps to kind of give it a certain cachet, especially nowadays where the songs are accompanied by videos and sure. you can curate those a little bit, right? So the cool Hebrew goes with those cool people they're seeing on the screen. So maybe we do have some opportunities that didn't exist, but I don't think we're going to quite get to where we once were. Mm-hmm. Good one. Wow. So Rabbi Galfand, uh, what's the biggest challenge that you faced as an educator? 
Oh, starting middle school. <laughs> no, I mean, so I'd never been in a classroom and it was that tachless practical challenge from early on of how do I begin to learn the pieces that a classroom educator has to, to manage? Right. So I would have said, gee, that was my, you know, biggest challenge. But I want to say that, and I, I might even connect this to, to the Hebrew, right? That um, and I was reading in the paper this morning about the proposals and expectations for a national infrastructure bill, right? Because, you know, our roads and bridges, they're crumbling. And of course, I'm thinking, oh, yeah, and we've got bridges that are in danger of collapse now too, right? You know, those bridges that connect some of our text skills with our ability to try and reach a sense of deep meaning. Right. And so that challenge, I think, is trying to get kids to connect to Jewish text. Because we are always going to face that question of, so why should I be Jewish? Right, for sure. And I don't love the question as much as I love the question of, all right, so it's done. I'm Jewish. But so what? Because then we have that, so what? And I can start to say, ah, that is a huge challenge, but maybe it's an opportunity. Maybe it's the, the cart and the horse in which goes first. How do I begin to help young learners discover and develop and refine their spiritual signature without necessarily getting into the, to the Jewish specifics that might otherwise start to close them down? So I think my challenge is I want kids connected deeply to God. God is not Jewish. Mm -hmm. And, and yet as a Jewish day school, our mission is, well, we got to connect into heritage and to tradition. And so we're jumping into the Parsha with those images of God that are really so one dimensional. And God is so much more than what is captured in the lines of Torah. So I'd say that's one of our challenges is finding that degree of, of relevance. Um, you know, if I can give you an anecdote, maybe, this was just, I don't know, two, two weeks ago. It was shortly before Pesach, before Passover. And I walked into a kindergarten room at our school. And there on the bulletin board was this giant, you know, four-foot brown paper pyramid. And, and I get it. You know, we didn't build the pyramids as slaves, but they were already there when we got there. But we know pyramids are symbolic of Egypt. And if I say, give me a symbol of Egypt, 99 out of 100 people, they're giving me a pyramid. Yeah. And I saw that and I was on my way to a fourth grade class and something just popped into my head. And I arrived, I walked into the classroom and I said, they said, oh, are we going to continue with X, Y, and Z? And I said, no. I said, we're doing something totally different. And I walked to the board and I drew a triangle. And I said, what is that? It's triangle. These are fourth graders. And I said, uh-huh. I said, but we're out of school in two days because of, and they said, well, because we're going to go in for Pesach. I said, exactly. He said, oh, oh, it's a pyramid. I said, yeah, it's a pyramid. And I said, who was in charge? They said, oh, well, Pharaoh was in charge. I said, what were we? Oh, we were slaves. I said, and how did, how did uh, you know, Pharaoh feel about our lives? Oh, could care less about our lives. I said, got it. I said, and then what happened? They said, well, you know, plagues and we went free. And I said, we went free. And so I drew an arrow from that triangle on the board and I wrote free. Hmm. And I said, so we were free to do whatever we wanted, right? I said, just like when I was a kid, right? And I would say, okay, so um, I went to my parents. I, I set the table. I made my bed. I did my homework. And they say, okay, you're free to do whatever you want. And I'm thinking, well, I always hated Aunt Shirley's vase that's in the living room. Am I free to go smash that? You know, it's, of course not. We say we're free to go and do, but we're often not. There are constraints. So with the fourth graders, I said, so where'd we go? And they're all kind of looking at me a little blank. And then I just drew another triangle. And they're looking and they're looking at this triangle on the right representing Egypt and a triangle on the left with an arrow going towards it. And finally, one of them clicks and says, oh, Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. And I said, yes, we went from one triangle to another. And I said, who was the ruler? And they said, God. And I said, and what were we? And, I, and then the one kid said slaves. And I said, no. <laughs> so we were servants. Servants, right. And I said, and they said, well, same thing. And I said, no. I said, if you put in your application to be a servant in the palace, I said, you don't get picked unless you're what? And I said, you know, you're the queen. Who, who, who do you get to pick as your servant? They said, trustworthy, someone who's a good listener, someone who's compassionate, somebody who's organized. I said, got it. And I said, 
And how did God as the ruler feel about our lives? And they said, amazingly. Mm-hmm. And I said, we every year celebrate this holiday where we go back to Egypt and we dredge up the past. I said, wouldn't it be so much better just to chuck the past in the trash can and stick with that triangle? Mm. And the kids are starting to weigh this. And I said, we go to Sinai, but we go there with the experience of Egypt, of what it meant to be degraded and shamed and lowly. And I said, and we flip that experience on its head and we remember it over and over. And we say, never again will I be like that. And my mission in life is to take these values of Torah, of what I get at Sinai, and I am supposed to take these and say, based on my experience in Egypt, this is what I'm going to bring to the world. I'm going to teach people about love. I'm going to teach people about service. I'm going to teach people about um, you know, covenant and about being in the image of God and about paths of peace and about truth and about integrity on and on. I said, the Torah is not just some rolled up scroll with a little velvet cover that you parade around the synagogue. I said, Sinai represents the values and beliefs that we are, we have an opportunity to bring to the world. And I said, take that upside down Egypt and put it on top of Sinai and you get a Jewish star. Mm -hmm. So maybe our Magen David, our Jewish star is saying, we have the inversion of Egypt as symbolized by the pyramid. And we say, I'm going to take my experience from that, but I'm now going to take my values of Torah, which are uniquely ours. Even if some of them have universalized out to the world, we've got value after value that are unique to our Torah, that are what we need to be the reflector that shines to the world. And if we can bring our kids along to that point where they recognize that there has been an ongoing chain unbroken back to the Exodus, back to Sarah and Abraham. That chain only exists if they choose to link theirs to what came before, that their generation is entirely up to them. And so it's, yes, why be Jewish? But it's, look at these values. How could I ever be the one to break that chain of reflecting those values to a wider world until they hopefully are universally accepted? Well, that's right. deep. And that, that's our mission, right? Yeah, as 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 you were saying that, I was thinking, you know, there aren't a lot of upside down triangles in the world. And then you said to combine it with the other one, and I was like, whoa. Yeah. And it, really, it only really occurred really to me because I walked into this into this classroom and saw a paper tri- a triangle, and I it it just popped into my head, and I and I was trying to think, how do you get to kids and recognize that they have a mission? And I, and I said to these fourth graders, if it feels like I'm putting a little pressure on you, good. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's not on me. I said, my children are the generation older than you. And I said, I've taken care of their generation and I'm helping to take care of yours. But I said, who's taking care of the generation after you? And they said, we are. Yeah, definitely. And I said, and that's what it means to stride forward, being willing to take responsibility, even if you're a little nervous. But I said, the stakes are high, but the values that you bring are extraordinary and they should strengthen you and give you courage every step of the way. Definitely. Yeah, it sounds sounds like that would give would give you some motivation as an educator. Are there any, sure. any other ways you stay motivated? Uh, I think it all goes back to the kids, right? When you stop and ask kids, where are you? And how do you feel? And what do you want to know? It puts front and center the reason why I do what I do. And I think it builds the trust and the rapport that enables kind of soul for learning to stick. So if you'd said, how do I stay motivated? A while back, I would have said, well, I read. But I'll be honest, look, I turn on TED Talks. I put on the Eli Talks mm-hmm. and all sorts of stuff on YouTube in terms of Jewish living and Jewish learning. Um, but I think I'd also say that folks should put something like Parker Palmer's um, uh, Courage to Teach on the list. And that keeps up the motivation because he understands the demands of teaching and how you know it can lead you to feel like you're burning out. So he understands that reconnecting with our craft and with our students is where educators need to begin. It's a reminder that, you know, we've got to cultivate the learning environment that honors and develops the deepest human capacities, not just in children, but in ourselves. And it's really uplifting, right? You know, when when he urges us to remember 
that it's the person within the teacher that matters most, right? It's not just you as a teacher, but it's don't forget who you are as a person. And that does help to motivate me. Right. And it sounds like you really love what you do too. So I'm sure that helps. Yeah, definitely. How would you... Teaching's teaching's a hard task, you know, and we all, we all need it. And we certainly, we lean on one another and some at different times, each of us is you know able to give strength to the other. Well, I like that you mentioned that um, because I'm sure, you know, there's always new educators, you know, joining the field, joining craft. Um, what advice would you give to them as they're beginning their journey? Hmm. Teach what you don't have to unteach later. Hmm, in other words, said that same thing. Well, because when if if you're if you're teaching something just because it's there on the piece of paper or in the book, or if you don't really believe it, um, in some ways I think it's oh I'm, I'm afraid to sort of be that open and honest with with my students. Um, so respect the learner, right? No matter the age. I mean, yes, my world is the is the kindergarten to fifth grade, and so to me, respecting the learner means. Don't dumb it down. Give kids credit for having a deeper spiritual life and a greater potential for understanding that you might assume. And so I'd say to a new educator, remember to respect the learner in the basic sense of that word, respect their capabilities. But I would also say this to to a teacher, especially as somebody who started in a middle school and was often overwhelmed by the demands that the institution could require of me, is that respect your students in the basic sense that we use the word respect. Like I said before, you can't unring the bell. You can cancel out when you've given an incorrect fact. You can come back and say, oh, you know what? (laughs) I said Babylonians, I meant Assyrians. Okay. But the impact of our words and the tone behind them are so keenly felt by kids that we cannot undo them once we've said them. Right. So be kind to children. Do you you think sometimes they're a student can have too many educators, like it causes confusion because there's so many different like perspectives coming at them. And so maybe there's inconsistencies as opposed to having, you know, one or a handful of, of educators for, for a student. I think there's something to that, Ari. I think maybe what it takes is just one of those teachers saying, you know what, you're only in second grade, but you're going to have lots of different teachers and they're going to seem different from time to time. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. You know, if if one of those teachers can deliver that message of we see things in different ways, right? That's the analogy. It's a great God analogy, by the way, right? You know, the children who are who are unsighted, the blind children who go to the to the zoo and they experience the animals of the zoo in a different way, and they come back and the teacher says, "So, what was your favorite moment?" And they say, "Oh, the elephant." You know, one of the teachers says, "What did you love?" And he said, "I I loved the fact that the elephant was solid like a tree trunk." And the other one said, what? You know, the elephant was bristly like a broom. And the other one said, no, it was kind of like a wet hose. And <laughs> you know where this is going, right? They were all feeling different parts of the elephant. Oh, right. And so they were all correct. If we say your teachers don't always see the whole perspective, they're human. When you look from one standpoint, you can't see everything. Somebody's on the other side of the building, and you don't see them. So listen to what your teachers have to say. And when you hear them say different things, Say, that's interesting. There might be different perspectives. So yes, it could be that one teacher gives them that little key to unlock the uh, the difficulty. Then maybe as they go through life, they'll go, oh yeah, I remember that teacher back in you know second, first grade, whatever it was, who said, don't, don't think that teachers are t- teaching you different things. They're just teaching you different ways that they see it. Well, I really like that answer. And um, how do you think that we can help our students really build that proper Torah foundation? Hmm. So I like the question. Um, I like the, I like the word foundation. Torah leaves me a little bit lost, right? Cause those are the keys, right? Torah foundation. The foundation is going to serve to support a student like a foundation does. Um, so then a different perspective might be what's so special about my Jewish tradition that I should look to it as a foundational layer. Um, you know, the word Torah, what does that mean, right? Because Torah is a catch-all and it can mean scripture. It can mean ritual. It can mean halakha. It can mean the combination you know, of Mishnah and Gemara and so much more. So when you ask, how do we build a Torah foundation? I think I would start to say it has to go beyond the biblical text. But even if we all do focus so much in those early years on the biblical text, 
We have to ensure that kids see Torah as something that they can connect to in terms of their own worldview and that there's value in it. Rare is going to be the group that can say, you have to value Torah as a foundation simply because. And for our kids, you know, so, and there are opportunities with this. So to take something uh, like the study of the book of Joshua, which I start to work with third graders on, you could say, so what is this meaning of this battle of, uh, uh, for the city of Jericho? You know, and now I can connect that to modern day spirituals, like the song Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and talk about the metaphor of walls coming, tumbling down. So you can connect it to something which they're seeing throughout history and maybe now echoing in current day. But then you have to also go back and say, but what are we going to do about a God that says, let's kill everybody in the city, including the children. And I'm not going to hide that from a third grader because we're giving them a book where they can read the English and they can see what's in there. And so now I can start to say, so what, what does a story like this mean? Does this mean that I can't trust Torah? Or do I say, this was at such a different time. And what do Jewish soldiers do now, right? To go back to the idea of Israel education, that there's a code of ethics that applies to the Israeli defense forces that means that that should never happen means we've clearly moved on from it. But why were we so concerned with it then? So when we say a Torah foundation, you have to look at different pillars of support that form that foundation. And each one could be a potential pitfall, but each one can also be another potential point of, I don't want to say rehabilitation, I'll say opportunity, where we can start to make a point of connection so that they say, this is relevant. Take a story like you know, the friendship of Jonathan and David, and we get a chance to talk about loyalty and friendship, and they can express their perspectives on what they see in life. So now all of a sudden, it's not just a story, but it's a timeless story. And there are certain values in it that, that are meaningful. So that's one dimension of it. The other piece, though, when I think of a Torah foundation for students, it's how do we get them to continue being Jewish in their lives. And like I said before, part of it is the home. We can only do so much at the school and we need something to happen at the level of the family. Mm-hmm. Um, right. and we need to get them to experience things, right? We, we can only do so much unless we get the students to feel like they belong to something, especially, you know, back when I was getting into Jewish education, a lot of people were sort of having this debate between, you know, beliefs versus actions, you know, and I think probably still some people who still debate that. And do we focus on getting people to believe and then that'll lead them to do things? Or do we say, let's just get out there and do and it's going to lead you to believe. And I'm coming kind of coming at it from the opposite and saying, you know what? Maybe echoes of Ron Wolfson and relational Judaism and saying, let's get people to just start doing. And even if they don't believe, they'll feel like they belong. So to me, there's the Torah of belonging. And it's, it's not just peoplehood. It can take different avenues through that, through that city. But to me, it's all going to come back to belonging. Um, yeah. And that's the strongest foundation. I think the most lasting one that we can ever hope to build. Right. That, yeah, that is very interesting. And, and one of the things we've learned by asking this, this question to, to uh, some people is uh, that one of the pillars uh, for this foundation, and, and you may think differently, um, but we found that one of these pillars is this idea of Torah Mina Shaman, right? Torah coming from heaven. And so obviously we want to be honest with the students. So what happens if, you know, they want to know that information or, um, you know, how do you address that? Kids do ask, right? And we've had kids who they have Bible scholars for parents. Um, and, and they'll say, you know, so my, my, my mom tells me that, People wrote the Torah. Right. And that's the, that's the bell that can't be unrung because every other kid in the classroom just, just heard that. And you go, <laughs> yeah, there are definitely people who believe that. Yeah. And they'll say, well, what do you believe? And I'll say, well, let me talk about some of the other positions that are out there. And when they ultimately want to know what I feel, I'll say, ultimately, I don't know. I said, but I'd like to think that the Torah that we have is the one that God wanted us to have, however it got into our hands. And the how is so much less important than the it's there. And we've lived by it. 
We've died for it. We've cherished it. It's inspired us. It's guided us. So let's open it and let's see what we find in it. And we may find that there's stuff that we don't resonate with. We might find that there's stuff that we had no idea was in there. So we've got parents coming from across the, you know, the, the wide spectrum of, of belief and observance as to the divinity of Torah versus you know, the authorship. It doesn't seem to be a sticking point for kids. You know, this kind of goes back to the idea of, of, of Israel education. Um, you know, there's some current research that seems to suggest that kids at the earliest of age, literally at kindergarten, can say Israel is a place that represents safety for all the Jews. And Israel is a place where it's dangerous to be a Jew. Mm. Biometric opposites. And young kids can hold those opposites without any conflict. We have a problem with it when we get older. But kids don't. What if that same premise is true for other things as well? And they can say, well, yeah, there are some very different ways of looking at this, this book that we consider so valuable. And um, I don't need to make up my mind about where it came from. Because it is what it is. No matter where you are in the world, Jews have the same Torah. And they might look at it very differently, but they, they read it. And they talk about it. They argue about it. And they wonder about it. So that's where I come out on it. Yeah, no, this is, this is really interesting. I mean, we're running out of time, but we're going to hopefully have you back because uh, we'd love to continue this uh, conversation. Well, Colin uh, Kavod, you know, great respect to both of you for for going out there and sort of beating the bushes and and, and finding different opinions out there and sharing it with everybody. Um, the, the more ideas we can share, the more we can learn from one another. And uh, I, I look forward to checking out the podcasts that are on your list and hopefully expanding what I'm able to do with, with my craft and with my kids. Nice. Yeah, yeah that'd be great. And just <laughs> real quick, can you give us an idea? What do you think successful Jewish education in the future will look like? Hmm. Uh, I think Jewish education is going to be that we help kids understand not just the stakes of needing to be the next link in the chain, but why the stakes matter, namely how it and they can transform the world. So to me, I'm going to gauge success if they arrive at that kind of a position. Um, successful Jewish education is going to transform their character. Um, mm. you, can't go, you can't go to it because it doesn't exist yet, but I did preserve the domain name for a website that I want to develop because I, I started having this idea of, you know, from I like sports. So if you think of certain athletics, right? Simone Biles is flawless on various of her gymnastic events or, you know, Djokovic's backhand or Steph Curry's foul shooting. You get this rhythm because you do it over and over and over until your muscles act reflexively, right? We call it muscle memory. Well, I thought, I don't care about muscle memory as a Jew. I care about character memory. I want kids to get into that moment where they know how to act or how not to act in a reflexive manner. And so character memory. So I grabbed charactermemory.com. I haven't done anything with it yet, but love it. Successful so Jewish be, education yeah. is building character memory so that we just know how to do it. Love and it. That so character is, is uniquely Jewish. Are you is it using uh the various midot and so it, a lot of it does depend table? on coming coming at it from a, a the standpoint of Musser. Um, but it's also looking at some of those values of, of Torah, which I think are some of which have, have are crossover hits into the wider world, but sometimes we have to look and say, maybe they started with us. You know, am I going to be so bold to say justice started as an idea with us? I might be, mm. I might be willing to make that claim and then say, but justice is far greater than us, but it's also something that the world needs perhaps more than anything else. And you can say, well, why don't I just leave it up to the rest of the world? And I'll say, because we have a Jewish obligation to bring that forward. So successful Jewish education is going to be transforming character with kids understanding why the stakes matter and how they can proceed forward and step boldly towards the transforming that they're able to do. Wow. Uh, yeah. So when they ask, what's the source of that obligation? Do you say God? Well, I might say, do you feel like that's something that you should do? Right. And many kids will simply say, 
yes. And I'll say, what makes you feel that you should do that? And I'll say, maybe that's God. Nice. Wow. What a way to end it. Rabbi Galfand, it was an absolute pleasure and honor to have you here uh, on the podcast. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll speak to you soon. And uh, we're looking forward to, to seeing uh, all the great things that you do. All right. I appreciate your having me on, Yasmina and Ari. Thank you. Good luck in your further, uh, further efforts. And uh, Hatzlachah Rabbah. Great luck. I mean, you Thank as well. You. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.